I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by BQE, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. So what you just said to me is that you have a go, no go checklist, whether it's written out or whether it's just in your head of these are terms that I will accept from a client and these are terms that I won't. And you ran it through your checklist and it's like, no, if it doesn't meet these requirements, I can't work with you. That's really smart. You'd be shocked as to how many firms don't have something like that. Like they have it in their head, right? Well, but they also have, you know, we are down $100,000 in revenue from last year. So we need this, this job, right? And I, and I get it. Like as a business owner, you need to keep the doors open, right? Our job is to help you understand the risk that you're taking on. People have different risk tolerance, right? It's just, it's like in finance, right? When, when you sit down to plan your retirement, they say, well, what's your risk tolerance? Do you want to be investing in, you know, NFTs or do you want to be investing in like bonds or, you know, CDs, right? Like what's your risk tolerance? It's important as you are a, a firm owner or, or somebody making pretty important decisions in a firm to know what your risk tolerance is and know what your, your firm's risk tolerance is. It's not something we really talk about. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you're listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thanks for coming back, everybody. If you're an architect or engineer, with decision-making power in your firm, have your own practice, or are eyeing the opportunity to move up or start your own practice one day, you'll want to listen to this entire episode. Now, most people tune out when they hear the word insurance, 
but this is honestly one of the best and most relatable conversations about risk management and insurance in our industry that I've been a part of. In this episode, I speak with Zach Waters, CEO at Black Swan Risk Management. You'll get this as we talk, but he believes in a practical approach to protecting design firms and spends much of his time teaching and consulting on best practices, quality management, and contractual issues in the design industry. We discuss a lot of real-world examples and practical tips that you can implement today to reduce risk for your projects and firm. You'll hear about QAQC process, fault versus exposure, things to look out for in consulting agreements, prevailing parties clause, the importance of a go-no-go checklist, negotiating lower insurance requirements, standard of care versus best practices and their impact on insurance, and much more. Today we are digging into important conversation. Um, I had to go through this early on in setting up of my business, but uh, we're going to chat with someone from the insurance and risk management side of our profession. Uh, so please help me welcome the CEO of Black Swan Risk Management, Zach Waters. <clears throat> Zach, thank you for joining us. Awesome, Demetrius. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to dig in to kind of kick this off. Tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and what does um, Black Swan Risk Management uh, do? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so Black Swan Risk Management is an insurance brokerage and a risk management firm for architects and engineers. Uh, only architects and engineers. We don't work with contractors. We don't work with developers. I started this firm about two years ago because it was very apparent to me that design professionals had this specific set of insurance requirements and and very particular things uh, that that related to kind of the standard of care and what they agree to when they get licensed and all that. And that well, that's not the same for for construct other areas of construction. And so started an insurance brokerage and risk management firm that was solely there to help design professionals and be able to, to kind of add services like contract reviews and contract negotiation and training on you know how to handle site visits and email best practices, like kind of all these things that are risks that we take on when, uh, when we become a business owner. How did I get there? I fell backwards into it, like most people in the insurance industry yeah. definitely didn't. Uh, I did not uh, grow up as a child wanting to be in the insurance industry. I, in fact, I didn't know anybody that that was in it. Um, I had been in finance uh, in my early twenties, and it was a it was a really rough time for the stock market. It was a, a kind of two thousand eight crash, and I just wasn't really sold on the idea. You know, it didn't have the uh, prestige and it didn't really necessarily feel as good as I thought it would. Yeah. And and so a, a mentor of mine kind of lured me over into insurance. And at that time, it was even just general insurance. And I was still not super sold. And then I found a, a firm that was working with design professionals only. And I really enjoyed the idea of being in the design industry and not in the insurance industry, right? And that's kind of how we think of ourselves um, is, yeah, we do insurance and, you know, it is kind of a necessary evil and there are different views uh, on it. But 
Um, we very much want to be part of the design industry and and all of that entails and and understand that industry and, and work with those folks and the nonprofit that uh, I'm on the board of is the Architectural Foundation of San Francisco, which is a program for middle school and high school students mm-hmm. who are considering a career in design, um, not just architecture, all types of engineering, construction management, um, but it is uh, a wonderful program, provides technical training. And, and then through that, we started an interview series interviewing design professionals, uh, folks who had started their own firm, that type of stuff. So it's, it's kind of snowballed. It's, yeah. it's turned into something pretty cool. Yeah. So. Sounds like it. So we talked about you do insurance brokerage and then risk management. Can right. you break down the two differences? Uh, cause not everyone, not every insurance broker, uh, provides risk management services. So can you kind of highlight those two and, and what you mean by risk management in particular? Absolutely. And that's a really important point is an insurance broker by definition places insurance policies. It, there's, <laughs> it's a pretty minimal barrier to entry. Unfortunately, it's like a week long course and uh, you get licensed and then they send you on your way and you're, you're licensed to place insurance policies, property and casualty. Risk management is kind of the practice of looking around the corner and anticipating what might go wrong. And for our purposes, everything that we can do to have help you prevent having to use your insurance policy. Yeah. So there's the insurance, which is going to insurance companies, having conversations, you know, being a broker, which is a, an, an advocate for the client, whether that means shopping your insurance or helping with claims, things like that. The risk management is really understanding the industry and looking at the data in terms of where folks get themselves into trouble, right? Mm-hmm. What is causing design firms to go out of business? What is costing them huge amounts of uh, money or time yeah. in claims? Or what are just these little things that it's like, man, if we just told somebody that in the beginning of their career, we might save them a lot of time <laughs> or a lot of money, right? Like yeah. these kind of these little things. And so the benefit in specializing is that we get to work with hundreds upon hundreds of design firms. You start to see patterns, Mm -hmm. right? You start to see the same things over and over again. You start to see, well, firms that do this, this, and this, man, they don't have claims. They have high retention of their employees because they're training folks. Folks feel like they know what's going on. Um, they have great, you know, QAQC, quality assurance, quality control. They have all these systems in place to make people feel like, we're doing everything we can to avoid pretty serious problems. And then on the other side, you see firms that don't have any of that. And you're like, ooh, I mean, it's the equivalent of driving 90 miles an hour down the freeway without uh, a seatbelt on (laughs) with, you know, no mirrors. And you're just like, "Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, you could make it or some really serious things could go wrong. Yeah. So just to give a little, a little nibble of working with you, what are maybe one or two things from each of those categories of the good side to avoid risk? And then the, the things that you do that expose yourself. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the good ones I mentioned, so QAQC, right? What are your procedures? If you're a firm with multiple employees and you probably have uh, a couple principals and owner, you know, somebody at the top of the company, and then you have kind of mid-level employees, um, you know, who have some experience in the industry, and then maybe you have some entry-level employees, right? Mm -hmm. What are those entry-level employees, if they're communicating with clients, first of all, are they? That's a question mark. Are they? And if they are, who's overseeing that, right? Right. Is it an email where 
before they send an email, it's got to get checked by two separate people before it goes out. Is it an email where you're copying a principal on everything that's going and it's really the principal's responsibility to review that because the principal knows you know, or should know kind of what to look for and yeah. what might be problematic there? Very simple QAQs, stuff like that. But But we could build a whole list of things, right? Which is if I'm going to go on a site visit, uh, for a project, do I send my most junior person because my senior staff is busy? Yeah, and that person doesn't isn't super familiar with the project, and maybe doesn't know what they're doing. They've never done it before, and they're walking around and they're taking pictures, and they're just like, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on here, right? Like, what am I looking for? What is, uh, you know, construction defect? Like, I don't, you know, yeah. And we've had instances in that case where somebody took too many pictures, they snapped a picture of something that wasn't even related to design, but it was, um, let's just say it was a contractor hanging from a ladder or something. And it's like, man, you should have turned that in, right? Yeah. That's that's a problem that turned into an injury. You had documentation of it. And so you can kind of go down this whole rabbit hole. Because you know, then you expose yourself. You do. and And kind of to back up a little bit, litigation and lawsuits and insurance claims are a very real part of construction, right? Yeah. And, and I wish they weren't. And so we can think about it this as, man, that is really, really rough. And it is, right? But we can either be people who are trying to help the process and try to minimize um, you know, what goes on and prevent you from going into a claim. But if you are in a claim, get you out very quickly, whether that's time or money or, you know, just having a good attorney or whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, or the opposite of that is, I mean, uh, the Millennium Tower is a great example, right? We did a case study on the Millennium Tower up here in San Francisco. It is in hundreds of millions of dollars of litigation, yeah. right? It is any design professional that touched that project has paid something on their insurance. And there was a project policy that that covered a uh, a portion of it, and you know the details of that are kind of closed up. But it's a very real claim uh, of a of a project that that shouldn't have shouldn't be sinking, and it is yeah. right. And so a bunch of people missed some some important steps, right? There was not there were some missing QAQC on that, and you know we think that it doesn't happen, and we have great programs nowadays that prevent that type of stuff for the most part, but it still happens. Yeah. And one of the things that people don't realize with lawsuits is whether you're at fault or not, they uh, they do these blanket lawsuits to, mm -hmm. to suck everybody possible into it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but typically your insurance will sort of settle just to get it out of the way and pay as little as possible, right? Unless it, it depends, they but yeah, that's definitely, it's a very reasonable outcome. And that I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because if there was one thing that I would say to someone who is getting ready to start a firm, right? You're a, let's say you're an architect and you're working at a larger firm right now. Um, the economy is moving in a direction. Maybe you, you know, you've developed a nice portfolio of work and, or you have an opportunity to go out and somebody's going to give you some projects and, and get you started. You're going to hang a shingle, start your own firm, right? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love working with people who have that entrepreneurial mindset. You need to understand that there's a huge difference between fault and exposure. And that's just what you said, right? Am I at fault? Did I do it wrong? Is it me? In which case, you know, hey, I'll own the, the consequences of that. Yeah. Or do I have exposure? And exposure is, was I part of the project, right? Is the, is the owner of the project somebody who is so happy? Is the structural engineer, is the contractor known for not paying their bill, right? Like yeah. there's all these things that are kind of out of your direct control, uh, but that is exposure. 
And, and being an architect or an engineer, you absolutely have exposure, right? There's just no way around that. Now, whether you want to bury your head in the sand and pretend that you don't, I mean, that's, you, know, you can do that, but, yeah. but you have exposure, right? Fault and exposure are very different things. Yeah. And those type of things will impact your costs down the line too, right? If you are exposed and get sucked into a lawsuit, you're going to end yeah. up probably paying higher fees at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the biggest part we focus on, and I, I partner with an attorney, I partner with a number of attorneys, but directly with an attorney that is able to help, uh, almost all of my clients. And we include contract review in our services because one of the most simple ways to help mitigate your risk is to sign better contracts, mm. right? Is to understand what that contract that you're, you're agreeing to, what it actually says. Yeah. And was it written for you or was it written for a contractor? And I literally have a contract in my inbox right now that is from a larger architecture firm, a consultant agreement, tenant agreement to a, a smaller sole proprietor architect. Hmm. There is no malintent there. Yeah. These two folks have worked well together in the past. Here's the problem. The larger architecture firm sent my small architect client a contractor agreement. And the wording doesn't line up. Yeah. The wording is not meant for an architect. So it uses word in the indemnification, which is a section of the contract that says, uh, you will defend us if something goes wrong. It's like, <laughs> well, that's not, that's not insurable and that's not in your best interest, right? It says, uh, I warrant or guarantee. A contractor can warrant and guarantee things. An architect can't. Yeah. Right. That's not, we, we agree to the standard of care. It's not perfection. It is, it is the C plus average, right? So there's, there's all of these little things. Uh, that if you're if you're looking into the details that you can catch, uh, when I was in college, I used to work at uh, Lowe's Home Improvement, like Home Depot, right, kind of big box shop. And I talked to the loss prevention guy one time, and I was like, "Hey, are you chasing people that are stealing? Like, if they steal stuff and they're running out the door, and are you going to go out there and get them?" He's like, "Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, if they want, you know, if they want to steal a hundred dollars worth of stuff, I can do that. Where I help with loss prevention is I sit back on the computers and I see." errors, computer errors that were made that save us thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And that's the best use of my time. And that's kind of how I think about risk uh, for design professionals is there, there are things that we can do where we get caught up going back and forth, you know, uh, spending a lot of time here or there, or there are things that we can do that have a very real impact on our risk. And sometimes they're as simple as, Hey, this contract's not for me. Can you send me a different one? Yeah that easy. Right. And so sometimes it's just making those, those suggestions. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that I went through a similar situation where I was going to, uh, consult for a larger firm and they sent me a contract that was very much in their favor. It wasn't to the extent of a contractor's agreement, but it was very much in their favor. And I was like, uh, can't sign this and yep. sent back a, a bunch of, uh, red lines or changes to the to contract of things that I thought would balance out and uh, they dragged their feet on it. Didn't seem very enthusiastic about making any changes. So I was like, well, can't, can't work for you. Sorry. And just had yeah. to move on. Sometimes you just got to pass on the work <laughs> to avoid headache down the line. So what you just said to me is that you have a go, no go checklist, whether it's written out or whether it's just in your head of these are terms that I will accept from a client and these are terms that I won't. Mm -hmm. And you ran it through your checklist and it's like, no, if it doesn't meet these requirements, I can't work with you. That's really smart. 
you'd be shocked as to how many firms don't have something like that. Yeah. Like they have it in their head, right? Well, but they also have, you know, we are down a hundred thousand dollars in revenue from last year. So we need this, this job. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I get it like as a business owner, you need to keep the doors open. Right. Our job is to help you understand the risk that you're taking on. People have different risk tolerance, right? Yeah. It's just, it's like in finance, right? When, when you sit down to plan your retirement, they say, well, what's your risk tolerance? Do you want to be investing in, you know, NFTs or yeah. do you want to be <laughs> investing in like bonds or, you know, yeah. CDs, right? Like what's your risk tolerance? It's important as you are a, a firm owner or, or somebody making pretty important decisions in a firm to know what your risk tolerance is and know what your, your firm's risk tolerance is. It's not something we really talk about. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series, created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30-plus person firm, then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit, and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's BQE. Dot com slash masterclass. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, 
One, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. (laughs) So for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And now let's get back to the conversation. And I know you're not an attorney, but can you give your insight into the fact that contracts are not set in stone? They are um, not expected, but it is normal practice to to negotiate a contract. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sign anything that you're given. Can you kind of share your insight on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I will... I will say the same thing. I'm not an attorney and I don't play one on the internet. (laughs) Did not go to law school. Uh, But we, you know, risk is a big part of what we do. And so contracts by by extension are a big part of what we do. In that scenario, you know, a lot of our smaller clients always feel as though if they're given a contract by a much larger firm, now, whether that's a client and it's like, um, you know, a, a public agency, it's going to be hard to negotiate. We're not yeah. Lie, right? yeah. Um, whether that's a larger uh, design professional, right? Whether that's whether you're a sole proprietor structure engineer and you're contracting with a, a huge architect or something along those lines, right? A lot of folks feel like this is, it's given to them and and basically on these take it or leave it terms, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, yes, <laughs> but there are things that are in your favor and there's a couple ways that we can help negotiate around that. One is we're, we're both in California and in California we have uh, a civil code uh, 2782.8. And it's a really important civil code. It, it affects uh, design professionals and what's expected of them uh, in terms of indemnification, meaning uh, when something goes wrong, how do I have to make the other side whole? And we put some very clear terms out there. It was passed in the Senate Bill 486 and about, uh, say, four years ago. And it tracks insurance policies, not 100%, but it's, it's doing its best. And it tracks uh, the standard of care. So sometimes it's as simple as going back to the other side and saying, hey, this thing that you put in there doesn't track the law (laughs) very well, right? (laughs) So, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not, you know, I'm not an attorney, but like you're sending me something that is literally against what the California law says. Sometimes it like, here's like we we get uh, clients that ask or or our clients' clients ask for huge insurance requirements. Mm. If you were working on, um, you know, the LA Ram stadium was built uh, a few years back, right? I think it was a $5 billion project. That sounds Um, about right. (laughs) Yeah. Even though there was a project policy on it, I'm sure. I think everybody that touched the project needed $5 million in limits, right? That's a lot of insurance. If you're a sole proprietor architect doing 
$100,000 a year and you go ask an insurance company for $5 million <laughs> worth of coverage, they're going to say, hmm, yeah, it doesn't, the numbers don't quite add up there sometimes. So how do we do that? Well, there's a couple of things that we can do. We can go back to our client if we've been in business for 20 years and say, hey, I've had $2 million limits my entire 20 years careers. I've done this project, this project, and this project. Everybody else deemed it you know, appropriate. What is it about your project that's so special? Sometimes you can do that. If you're an architect, um, sometimes you get this you get this contract from a client and you go ask your subconsultants, you go find your, your structural engineer, your civil or whoever you'll be working with and say, hey, here's the contract. Would you sign this? And everybody says no, right? Because they go through <laughs> your, your uh, go, no, go checklist. And so you go back to the client and you say, hey, Mr. Mrs. Client, I really want to work with you. Here's the problem. If this is the contract that you give me, I'm not going to be able to hire anybody. So is there anything that we can do to make this, you know, track better on both sides? Sometimes the language is written in a tons of uninsurable clauses, right? We put like attorney's fees in there. Prevailing parties clause is an example. It says that, that the losing party will have to pay the winning party's attorney's fees. Hmm. It's not an insurable clause. And attorney's fees make up a huge percentage of a claim. So let's just say we had a $50,000 claim. And of that $50,000, 30 of it is attorney's fees. And you, you signed a prevailing parties clause. It's like, well, that's not insurable. Now you're $30,000 out of pocket. It's not paid for by insurance, right? That's really important to know. Um, so sometimes we can just go back to the other side and say, hey, get this. help me to track the language so it matches your insurance policy. Because that's what insurance is there for. Yeah. That's what we pay the premiums for is that you know we have our insurance to be able to, to handle stuff like this. If it's a huge claim, it's a million dollars and it was uninsurable, you can come after me for a million dollars, but like, I don't have that in the bank, right? Yeah. Like, like it's either you're not going to get paid or let's make it insurable, right? That's what I have insurance for. So yeah, those are, those are a few examples of kind of ways that we can negotiate a little bit more. Yeah. Now, Zach, you mentioned a couple things that I want to make sure that we define, and then maybe you can sort of connect it back to how these affect insurance, but uh, standard of care and then mm -hmm. best practices. Can you talk a little bit about those two? No, uh, the maybe the difference. They're, they're similar, but um, talk about those two and then how that connects to insurance, how it can affect your insurance. Yeah. So standard of care is really, really important, right? We're taught the standard of care in school. Um, you know, in, in summary, what would a similar individual, uh, similar discipline uh, in similar locale do in similar circumstances? It's really important that we get that because if we are designing a small bridge in Kansas, we need that's going to be held to a different standard of care than a bridge in San Francisco because we have these things called earthquakes, right? <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. standard of care is different. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I the locale is important, right? It's also what would a what would a similarly licensed individual do? Is it a structural engineer? Are we being held to an architect standard or you know vice versa? What does that look like? And the standard of care is it's not perfection. There's no such thing as a perfect set of drawings. There's no such thing as a perfect project, right? That inevitably, as we get through the construction process, uh, you know, as a design professional, there will be things that come up. And, you know, that's part of our job is to, to be able to pivot and, and make changes. It's important to know because we, because we cannot produce perfect work, we can't agree to that in contract to have perfect terms. Yeah. And this is where that divide between design professional and contractor that comes in is because a contractor can, right? Yeah. A contractor can guarantee their work. 
And if it's defective, they go back and fix it until make it you know perfect. And so it's just two completely separate standards. Your insurance policy as a design professional ensures you to the standard of care. So if you sign something or agree to something that elevates that standard of care, I, Zach Waters Architecture Firm, agree to a perfect project done by this date and free of defect and warrant and certify that it is up to every code and right, like all these things. And you're reading this like, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not good. So talk about um, exposure. So, <laughs> yeah, we're talking <laughs> about exposure, right? And and all of that exposure is on our dime because we have now made, you know, our insurance policy is not going to pick up uh, that that extra. With best practices, it's really hard to come out and judge whether you know an architecture firm, an engineering firm is using best practices, right? Mm-hmm. From an insurance standpoint, what we do is what I do is I like to go find all of the firms that are operating at good revenues, right? They're they're doing a lot of projects every year. They don't seem to have claims at all. Uh, they've got a really high retention. They've got you know great reviews and and they just seem to be doing something well, right? And then we go in and we ask them like, well, what are you you know what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me a little bit about this if they're willing to share, right? Sometimes they're like, ah, eh, secret sauce. Zach. I'm <laughs> yeah. not sharing that, but and and from those best practices, right? I as a as a risk manager, we start to write SOPs, standard operating procedures. Hey, this is a great practice for when you've promoted somebody to project manager. Mm. Here is what that person should know. And like the day that you promote them, here is the training course, series of videos, you know, in person uh, training that they should go through so that they fully understand their job and they're not out over their skis a little bit, you know, the first time they go sign a con or, you know, agree to a contract, something like that. Yeah. So best practices are there. It's very subjective term. Um, But from our standpoint as a risk manager, if I can show that you are a design firm that is, you know, has this growth mindset that is employing these best practices that you're doing all these things. One of my clients, an architect, we, we do monthly webinars that are meant to be educational. Uh, and, and his firm is on every one of them. Like they get, <laughs> they get together in the, in the conference room and they, they sit there and they watch them together and they kind of, you know, debrief afterwards. That firm doesn't have claims, yeah. you know, like that firm because they're sitting there and they, they have prioritized risk management, right? That's a best practice. You know, a lessons learned meeting at the end of every project, if we got together now, we, you know, we're not really in person, kind of a hybrid model these days, but yeah. back in the day, if we were in our office and we completed this project on a Friday afternoon and we ordered in pizza and maybe some adult beverages, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> and we sat there and we went through, we said, Hey everyone, this was a great job. What did we learn here? What was something that like, mm, okay, let's fix that for next time. And we make this list and we we have an open, honest conversation about it. We don't necessarily put that in writing because I don't want written documentation of everything we did wrong on our project, right? <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's not good. But a conversation, right? A really genuine conversation about it and do what's, what we would call like a lessons learned meeting or a lessons learned party. And it's just a, you know, it's, it's a celebration of the project and it's, and we walk through that. That's a great best practice. Yeah. Not a ton of firms are out there doing that. Sometimes they do a, a version of it, but there's there's all types of benefit to that if it's done correctly, right? If it's done incorrectly and you say, well, this was done incorrectly and then now we you know, shame Demetrius because he, <laughs> he did that, it's like, well, that's not going to work. So yeah. <laughs> there, there's definitely some caveats there. But all of those best practices, you know, it's up to someone in my position to take that back to insurance companies and say, look what this firm does. This is why 
they're not having claims. This is why they're a good risk, right? We we know that you know we can't fully account for everything, but the thought process, the prioritization of risk management is probably the most important thing. Yeah. That's a great point to sort of end on is that if you're doing all of these things, the reason to go to someone like you, an insurance broker who also does risk management, but um, is that you can now negotiate with these insurance providers and, and sort of argue on in defense of the architect or engineer, right? Right. And so we like to think that we help our clients get a, an ROI on insurance, right? A return on investment. Because here we are, we're, we're selling this product that we hope you never use. And I have a really hard time selling a product that I hope you never use. It just doesn't feel very valuable, right? Yeah. So, so if, you know, hopefully you're, if you're working with somebody that you're getting some type of ROI on top of that, right? You have a, you're able to go ask questions. Uh, there's training involved. There, there's all types of things there. Uh, but if not, if you're not looking for that from an, an insurance broker, yeah, go go on the internet and go find the cheapest insurance. You know, yeah. it's not. Make sure you understand policy form before you do that, because cheap insurance is gonna it's gonna look a little different. It's gonna exclude some things. But if you're not getting value from somebody like me who's helping you place it, then there are definitely cheaper options out there. So. Yeah, it's kind of the way that the way that you want to look and what you're looking for. You know, I I know people who hate insurance, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're like, I want the minimal amount possible. I want the highest deductible. I don't ever want to talk to you. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, that's not a great client for me. <laughs> that's not somebody that we want to. It doesn't it doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just not. It's not somebody that we're going to be able to help a whole lot. Yeah, you know, we want our clients kind of checking in with us on a regular basis. But um, yeah, that is hopefully the value that you're getting from. From having somebody place insurance policies, and then you know the, the benefit of having insurance, right? You as a, if you're a small firm, if you're a sole proprietor firm, and nobody's requiring you to have it, you don't need to. Yeah, I would argue it's a pretty good idea, but yeah. you don't need to. Uh, I had a, a client come to me the other day who asked me that question. He said, "Zach, what's the benefit of me even having this?" Yeah. Okay, well, let's go through it. And then he in turn takes that back to his clients, and he said, "Hey, you should hire me because I have insurance, right?" Mm. I'm safer. I'm a safer bet. Yeah. Thank you so much, Zach. This was super informative. For people that want to kind of follow along, what's the best place to do that? Yeah, um, we are big on LinkedIn. Um, Zachary C. Waters uh, and Black Swan Risk Management. We have webinars monthly. By all means, come uh, sign up for our webinars. We are trying to get them online so that you can check them out uh, for free. We like to produce tons and tons and tons of free content. And yeah, Z Waters at Black Swan Risk Management if you have any questions. Great. Really, really appreciate it, Demetrius. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Zach. And uh, thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts 
or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.